Today is the 70th anniversary of Al-Nakba, the Arabic word for catastrophe. On May 15, 1948, the State of Israel was established. In Israel, today is the 70th anniversary. For Palestinian people all over the world, it marks 70 years of the siege, of the occupation, and of apartheid. To better understand the current human rights situation in Palestine, 70 years after the Nakba, Rights on the Line spoke with advocates of human rights in Palestine about some of the many human rights violations experienced by Palestinians under Israeli occupation. The topics we'll be highlighting in this episode are freedom of expression, the rights of prisoners and detainees, and labor rights. The first interview of today's episode has to do with prisoners' rights, the right to a fair trial and humane treatment, as well as the rights of minors in detention. As of today, there are 6,000 people imprisoned in Palestine. Sahar Francis is the director of Adamir, an organization that, through advocacy and legal aid, supports and defends the rights of those imprisoned in Palestine and Israel. Adamir is a Palestinian uh, organization that for the last 25 years uh, working with the Palestinian political prisoners. Uh, the main work of Adamir is the legal aid for uh, Palestinian prisoners arrested by the Israeli occupation, but as well, unfortunately, by the Palestinian Authority. And we do uh, document and uh, monitor all the daily conditions of these prisoners and the violations that they face. Based on our documentation and legal work, we do campaigns and advocacy and lobbying work to support the cause of the Palestinian prisoners. And what are some of the daily conditions for those arrested in Palestine and Israel? What are some of the violations people are experiencing? Uh, first, let me uh, say that the uh, issue of the imprisonment under the Israeli occupation is a uh, like a long-term uh, policy that the Israelis were using as an act of control against the Palestinian society. So uh, when you figure the statistics, it's a huge number of people who were subjected to imprisonment. Currently, there's around 6,000 prisoners out of them, 330, 50 minors under 18 years old, and 63 women, and 450 administrative detainees, and six parliamentarians. So it's actually affecting the whole uh, society. Uh, most of these prisoners, they would face uh, some form of uh, violations like uh, torture, beatings, uh, humiliation, degrading treatment. Actually, from the first moment of the arrest, when they come to arrest them from their homes and all the way in the vehicles, the military vehicles to the interrogation centers, in uh, interrogation, they face uh, physical torture, psychological torture. Uh, it uh, uh, could be by um, uh, solitary confinement for long periods, sleep deprivation, physical pressure, like by tying them in very painful positions, banning them from meeting their lawyers in this uh, sensitive period. And it continues as well in the process of the trial while transferring them from the prisons to the uh, court. It's accompanied with lots of humiliation by the police forces that transfer them. 
And in the prison, actually, the life conditions of the prisoners are not uh, good because there is a lack of health treatment, mm -hmm. a systematic lack of health treatment, actually. Uh, also, it's very crowded. Some of them, they are forced to sleep on the ground. They don't get family visits properly. Uh, lots of prisoners are banned family visits based on security uh, claims. The uh, food uh, that is offered by the prison system is not sufficient in quantity and quality. Mm -hmm. uh, they are not like they are not uh, getting any education. Like the Israeli High Court back in 2012 cancelled all the process of uh, continuing their studies in the Open Hebrew University, although mm -hmm. it's an Israeli university, but still they banned them from attending this university, which means they are subjected daily to uh, some form of uh, oppressions and, and restrictions and punishments for any activity that they do if the prison authority claim that this is violates the rules, they would be subjected for punishments, mm -hmm. uh, isolation, uh, fines, that very high fines that they are supposed to pay mm -hmm. for the prison authority, banned from buying their stuff and needs from the canteen, the prison shop, and so on. Mm -hmm. And can you tell me why legal aid is so important or why that's a big part of your work? As we said, it's tackling almost every Palestinian house. So mm -hmm. when you think about an average of 6,000 prisoners every year, that they would be subjected for imprisonment and they need legal uh, representation, if families would end up hiring private lawyers, it's a very huge amount of money that they have to spend. So on Damir, one of the uh, Palestinian organizations that they dedicated their work since the first Intifada actually, mm -hmm. to support Palestinian families and prisoners on this issue, at least to guarantee free legal aid for these uh, prisoners and their family members. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit about as you mentioned earlier, the way that the extent of imprisonment, the amount of people that are imprisoned, functions as a tool of control in the context of the occupation. Actually, this um, phenomena as uh, the imprisonment to be used as a way of control started immediately after 48. It's mm -hmm. not a new tool that they started just after the occupation in 1967 in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. No, they immediately after the creation of the State of Israel back in 48, they arrested thousands of Palestinians uh, who remained in the state and didn't fled with um, uh, refugees. And uh, it amounted to 12,000 Palestinian men who were arrested. Some of them, they were also enforced uh, uh, to become refugees. They mm -hmm. were deported outside of the country. Some, they were allowed to go back to their villages or destroyed villages. Mm -hmm. And then they were internally displaced. So the state was planning to use the issue, the issue of imprisonment as a way of control over the Palestinian society and to break the soul of, this, of these people, to make them fear any act of resistance against this uh, colonization of their homeland. So they started to develop 
the whole uh, judicial system that enabled this way of control through using the British security uh, regulations of 1945 that they took from the mandate period. They implemented it inside the state of Israel after the... Um, uh, like they started to act as a state and later they developed their own criminal uh, uh, like law that applies all these uh, restrictions and rules and enforcing um, uh, the way of life how Palestinians should live under this new regime and so for example they made all Palestinian parties as illegal even inside Israel, any uh, initiative for initiating a new political party, if it was undermining the existence of the state of Israel as a Jewish state, would be declared illegal. So being an active in such a political party, this is, would be a reason for imprisonment. Actually, they implemented a military control over the Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel till 1966. So when they occupied the uh, territories, the rest of Palestine in uh, 1967, they were already ready with the plan of how to control the whole community within the law and the imprisonment. Wow. So they enforced the uh, military uh, system that they were experiencing inside Israel before actually occupying the rest of the country in the occupied territory. They started with implementing military orders that today it's more than 1,700 military orders that controls the whole life of the Palestinian people. Mm -hmm. So still every studential movement in Palestine is illegal. All political parties in the occupied territories are illegal till today, including Fatah, by the way, the main party who signed the Oslo Agreement. Mm -hmm. So it means they can accuse you and arrest you for any simple activity that you do, even if it's just purely political activity. Not mentioning, of course, all these uh, social media activities lately in the last couple of years that they claim it's incitement. So you would be imprisoned for one year or two years because you dared to publish something in your Facebook to criticize the occupation. So this is how they, and by arresting hundreds of thousands, like we don't have a very, unfortunately, a very exact statistics what happened inside Israel after 1950 till um, today, how many people were arrested. But since 67 till today, the estimation in the West Bank that uh, it's more than 750,000 Palestinians. This is means more than 40% of the Palestinian men were subjected for imprisonment at least once in their life. Mm -hmm. So this is how they control the whole society because imprisonment is just, uh, it's a tool to oppress you and to, to, to also to, to force your conscience mm -hmm. as a person because after torture, after a harsh experience, you wouldn't be the same person. Mm -hmm. So the aim of this is to affect as well a whole generations in Palestine, how they look to their national uh, aspirations, how they express themselves as uh, people who seek dignity and uh, uh, self-determination. And this is, this is, we can tell from our own experience as an organization that we face it on daily level, especially with children, that they get under such harsh experience how when they would be released they would be 
for long time suffering from uh, um, like different uh, like stress um, mm -hmm. uh, um, after uh, being stress. exactly mm -hmm. and and in some cases they don't get the uh, support that they uh, need so actually um, the torture and all these methods were used also the trial itself because it's not a fair trial and it's accompanied with lots of violations for the basic rights of these detainees, we can say that this is, was a tool by the occupation, by the colonialist state, in order to control the Palestinian society and to affect our uh, consciousness and uh, um, uh, resistance and our political life. Mm -hmm. Speaking mm -hmm. of children, does your work look a little bit differently when it comes to minors that are detained and imprisoned? Actually, uh, child detainees, they face the same methods of torture and harassment, um, especially on the level of the sexual harassment. It would be more sensitive in cases of minors, and they end up uh, being prosecuted in the same military courts. Though back in 2010, the Israelis um, invented this military court for juveniles mm -hmm. um, in order to send the message that here we are applying a, a democratic um, and uh, a, a system that respects the rights of children under detention. But in reality, if you dig in what this court is doing, actually there is no much protection under such procedures for children because still the custodial imprisonment is the only answer that they have. So more, all of these children that they are uh, present in front of these courts, they would be sent for custodial imprisonment, whether it's three months or four months or one year or even more than that. It's very rare that we succeed to release a child from such a, uh, imprisonment. And they don't respect the uh, trial procedures that the international standards offers for a fair trial uh, procedures or special protections for children, for example, in the level of interrogation, to guarantee that the child is represented, that his lawyer or at least one of his parents is uh, present there in the uh, interrogation. They even interrogate them before offering them any ability to get any legal counseling. Mm -hmm. They can interrogate them over midnight, over night hours. So this is a system that uh, systematically violates the rights of children, uh, detainees, actually. Final question for you. How do you find it is to position the issue of prisoners' rights um, within the larger international human rights movement? The issue of the uh, political prisoners in general actually is totally connected with any political um, cause. So it's not just uh, in Palestine that the Palestinian prisoners' case should be totally connected with the political, uh, general political situation and especially with the human rights aspects because those prisoners are protected under international humanitarian law in time of war and also protected under international human rights law 
in the normal situations. They have rights under interrogation, they have rights under the trial, they have rights while they are in prison. They never give up their dignity as a human being and their basic rights if they are prisoners. So no matter, and it's not just for the political prisoners, also for usual criminal cases. A prisoner don't lose his identity as a human being if he's imprisoned. He's entitled to get all the protections uh, that is guaranteed in these uh, uh, human rights treaties and international humanitarian standards mm -hmm. irrelevant to what he committed. Mm -hmm. This is our framework as a Domir and this is why we choose to uh, protect and uh, represent and legally defend these uh, prisoners of course and this is uh, what makes us bring these issues in such conferences for human rights and especially in such a conference now in Ireland uh, memorizing the Nakba because we think that the Palestinian prisoners issue should be included in any future uh, uh, political uh, like solutions and definitely it should be taken as a, a precondition for any uh, peace process because we believe what happened in the Oslo process it was unfair toward the prisoners because Israel manipulated the issue of the prisoners. Mm -hmm. They used the issue of the prisoners as a uh, pressure card against the Palestinian Authority. They never agreed to release all the Palestinian political prisoners. The opposite, they were re-arresting people who were released on such a political uh, exchange deals mm -hmm. and negotiations and their security claims and, and their uh, arguments that they went back to be active in their political parties. So actually they were pressuring the Palestinian Authority to give up some conditions in order to release prisoners. So why this is why it, for us it's a very important issue that should be considered not less than Jerusalem, than the borders, than the right of return, than uh, any other main issue in the Israeli-Palestinian um, conflict. Right. Thank you, Sahar. Thank you. Jamal Juma is a coordinator for the Stop the Wall campaign in Palestine. In 2009, he was arrested and frontline defenders, along with a number of other human rights and advocacy organizations, took up his case and, as a result of international pressure, he was released after a month. This past weekend, Jamal spoke at a panel titled Apartheid, International Law, Human Rights, and Workers' Rights at the Palestinian Freedom Conference in Dublin, hosted by IPSC, the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign. After the panel, Jamal spoke to Rights on the Line about workers' rights in Palestine. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, Jamal Juma, I am the coordinator of the Palestinian grassroots movement against the wall and the settlements in the West Bank. Can you tell me how workers' rights are violated currently in Palestine? And wor workers have been like before, like any let's say uh, the Oslo and before the whole uh, uh, um, new arrangement after Oslo. They were working freely. They were going in and out. There is no such obstacles. We are under the occupation. Like any, the occupation is responsible over everything. So ironically, after like any Oslo agreements, which is supposed to be an, a start for the Palestinian independent, independent states, the Palestinians started suffering. Like they started suffering even from uh, not just like any occupation, but it became colonial apartheid regime that's imposed on them and controlling them. 
One of the most has been affected is the workers because the workers after that they have to cross through on a workers crossing, which is nothing humiliating more than that. Queuing like cattles in this uh, on this crossing borders with tens of thousands, like in more than six crossing workers crossing. Uh, these workers has been their rights, all their rights has been abused. They are not dealt with as an normal workers that have rights by the by the Israeli law. So that has been subjected to the abuse from the work uh, places, the businessmen. So they didn't give them like the minimum wages. They slaved them with their uh, with their wages. They were easy for them to go by bus. The Israeli laws. This is talking about the workers that already have permissions there. And they were like and giving them, cheating with them behind the law. Like uh, in the monthly, if they have like a salary supposed to be 5,000 shekels, according to 25 days work. Uh, so they, they work 25 days work, but they registered and the slip of the work 10 days. So they gave them less than half of this uh, wages that's supposed to be. So they, uh, this is the workers that already supposed to be any having like legal status, like other workers like who go for an other uh, uh, forms of like permissions, like commercial, for example. They don't have this right. So this is, has been even much more like subjected to the, to the, uh, to the violations of their, uh, of their, not even with health, not if anybody had been injured, or not even with the. The wages that they are taking, sometimes they're cheating them, like after uh, a week they don't give them any of their uh, money that they're supposed to, uh, to have. Uh, there's other workers that they go there smuggling to work because they don't give them permissions. And these people has to, like, and he has to sleep there in a very dangerous conditions there. Some of them died, some of them. And this is also usually subjected to the whole cheating and abusing. and. The other, like any part maybe that I didn't talk about in my presentation, the women. And there is a lot of women is working in the Israeli labor work. Like, and like from Jericho alone, there is around 400 women working in Ma'ali Adumim settlement in the Khan al-Ahmar industrial zone. And this woman, the stories that you hear from this woman is like and really horrible. Most of them who's working particularly in the, in the, in the houses that has been raped. They have been sexually harassed all the time, abused, uh, blackmailed. Like, and, and this woman, poor this woman, this woman usually have a very difficult conditions. Either their husbands in the jails, in the Israeli jails, or they are handicaps from Israeli wounded, they have been wounded, became handicaps. So they have children to raise. So they, they have to shut their mouth and accept what happened to them. Like in, in order to keep be able to to raise their families and to keep supporting their families, the the children like any the, the children there they have like big high high percentage of children in the working agriculture there. We're talking about 12 years old, giving them 20 shekels and 30 shekels and working 12 hours and 10 hours in a very bad condition. They are also sexually harassed. They are also abused. You know. Um, the workers like in other like you know, forms like and when they have uh, injuries for example like and this has happened so many times I myself like any witness and so workers like this who get serious injuries in the factories in the Israeli factories where the where the owner of the factory has been throw them close to the the first outlet like from there 
giving them to Palestinian worker to take them to the hospital. Like sometimes some of them make it until the hospital, sometimes they didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And they have like being uh, handicaps or there some of them had their life and they didn't get any penny for, for uh, compensation. So when you talk about this like big part or class of the, 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 the society, and this is main main class in the society, this is where the, the whole society depends, they are sustaining the economy of the society, and they are the main power in the society, like with revolutions, with like, and as I said also, this is the, the one, who, their sons is dying in the demonstrations, their sons the one who's in jails, the one who's son's the one who's like in the forefront of the fights, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and this is what they are suffering and what they are going through in, in their life. Is there any space for advocacy for the rights of workers in Palestine? Yeah, there is, there is space. There is trade unions, like, and they are not doing like they're really, we are not happy with, with how they are doing it, like, and, uh, but there is like unionists, like there is a new unions that grows now up mm-hmm. and they have been, became a revolutionary really like and angry about the whole situation and they are trying giving an alternative to the to the uh, unfortunately the Palestinian the authority itself is not much helpful like any in this particular issue because it's situation because it's under the occupation because they don't have the resources because of so many other things but this is not justifying for them that and like and there's so many things that could could happen like on the national level that can also save the dignity of these people mm-hmm. on the private sector the Palestinian private sector also there's a lot of problems for the workers like mm-hmm. the low wages the there's no implementation for the uh, minimum wage like mm-hmm. which is very low still it's not implemented you know mm-hmm. and also there is no courts for the workers uh, problems like any court cases so some of the workers they, 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 their court, their case taken the court 15 years he died before he take his compensations or take him like his rights at the end mm-hmm. so the problems for this workers is from all sides you know, almost and there is an organizations that are trying to, to, to do this advocacy and we rely mainly on the workers themselves and the trade unions, the new trade unions themselves like and to do uh, the advocacy for their rights and to stand up for their rights in fact. Do union activists in Palestine face any reprisals or consequences for their work? Yeah, of course, like any the story that I told about the, this trade unionist who's like any the one who's one of the founders of the, this new union, like any he has been chased, he has been threatened by the Israeli intelligence, like, and, and uh, threatened by also the, uh, the the owners of the factories, like, and so his life was, was threatened, but he didn't give up, he just, like, and continue, and it's now, his, the, 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 their union is working, and still, they are now doing what they, what they, have, what they have to do. So, the, the, this trade unionist, like, and all the time, like, and even in Palestine struggle, in general, they were subjected to the, to the, to the, Israeli uh, occupation, like attacks and uh, jailing them and uh, chasing them and uh, trying to destroy their life. You know, like, mm-hmm. uh, and they are, the unions and the unionists mainly, they consider themselves as part of the Palestinian national movement, national resistance movement. So mm-hmm. when they talk about the working class rights, they are working about in in, in close relation, they then differentiate in the same level of like national struggle. So all the time they define themselves as we are in the national struggle and the class struggle at the same time. Both of them is very important and so on. 
That's why when they talk about the double like any uh, responsibility that they have and the consequences also after that, mm-hmm. because they are part of the national resistance or popular resistance, uh, national resistance, and they are also part of the defenders of the workers' rights. So they have to deal with both, with both both cases. I understand. Does the Israeli state also view union activism as part of overall Palestinian resistance? Yeah, I think the Israelis didn't differentiate. Mm-hmm. You are a Palestinian activist, in no matter what is it like, and you are like totally. They consider you like an an a target and uh, and any illegal entity. Or so you expect that you will go to jail. You expect that you will be harassed. You expect that you will be kicked out of your work. You expect that you will be chased. So many things bad could happen to you. Mm-hmm. Final question for you, Jamal. Why is it important for the international community to see also this lens into Israeli occupation and struggle in Palestine, to look at it through the lens of workers' rights? The people's rights isn't divided. I don't think it's divided, like, mm-hmm. any, and it shouldn't. Like, any, and any, any worker abuse or like any human rights abused for any people around the world, like any, either it's in Africa or Asia or in Palestine or everywhere, like any, it's abuse for all the human rights, for all the people's rights. Any victory for the people's struggles for their rights is a victory for all, because at the end, the thing that brings us together as human beings is defending our dignity, our rights, our, our existence, and to live in dignity. Uh, and inequality, like any, and that's what we are seeking for all of us. So, all colonialism, imperialism, this is against against the people. So here, when we talk about the human rights, we talk about the power of the people together, facing the the, the colonialism, the occupations, racism, apartheid, abusing, slaving the people. Thank you for your time, Jamal. Thank you. The final interview we will be bringing you on today's episode of Rights on the Line, marking 70 years of the Nakba, 70 years of Israeli occupation in Palestine, is with co-founder of the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, Omar Barghouti. Omar has faced judicial harassment, smear campaigns, and other reprisals for his work as an advocate of the human rights of Palestinians and for his support of BDS, which is a movement for nonviolent resistance against Israeli occupation. We discuss the way the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement is rooted in widely accepted international human rights conventions. Uh, of course, it's important to say that the boycott, divestment, and sanctions or BDS movement for Palestinian rights, which was launched in 2005, is a human rights movement that is anchored in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. As such, it is categorically opposed to all forms of racism and discrimination, including anti-black racism, Islamophobia, and surely anti-Semitism. Uh, The movement calls for equal rights for Palestinians to everyone else around the world, for ending Israel's injustices against Palestinians in line with international law. So there's absolutely nothing in the BDS movement that would contradict universal human rights. Uh, Quite the contrary, it, it very much conforms to that. Because of the growth of the BDS movement since 2014, Israel has adopted a new strategy for fighting the movement, uh, taking into account its strategic impact, which is recognized by Israel. That strategy uh, includes uh, propaganda, uh, massive expenditure on propaganda, uh, legal warfare, which is fighting the movement from above after failing to defeat it from below Mm -hmm. at the grassroots level, and I'll get to that in a second, 
and third, using Israel's intelligence services to quote-unquote sabotage the movement uh, uh, and to try to smear activists and human rights defenders within the movement. So I guess both the lawfare, legal warfare, and the use of the intelligence community in Israel to sabotage the movement, both uh, um, are, are relevant to this issue of suppressing free speech and freedom of expression. Because of Israel's recognition of the strategic impact of BDS, uh, the attacks have intensified after the election in 2015 of Israel's most racist, most far-right government ever, mm -hmm. uh, with the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in Israel being today completely focused on just fighting BDS. Uh, and since 2016, this ministry established a, a, a unit called the Tarnishing Unit. That's the actual name mm -hmm. of the unit they established in 2016, the Tarnishing Unit. Wow. So you can imagine its function. Uh, and since then, that unit has been working um, um, quite uh, intensively, not just against Palestinian and Israeli human rights defenders who are active in the BDS movement, but also against internationals. Uh, who support Palestinian rights, even remotely supporting any form of accountability for Israel. So Israel is not making much of a distinction between calling for a full boycott of its regime of oppression, colonialism, apartheid, or those calling for a boycott of Israeli settlements. There's absolutely no distinction in Israel's dictionary. Mm -hmm. Any form of accountability for Israel is immediately considered a form of BDS and therefore is fought as a strategic threat, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. uh, to Israel. Uh, since uh, 2015, and especially after 2016, Israel has been uh, doing a lot to try to suppress uh, our uh, ability as, as human rights defenders to speak on, uh, for Palestinian rights and to call for accountability uh, measures, from travel bans to threats of so-called civil assassination, mm -hmm. uh, which I personally was uh, subject to mm -hmm. by one of the Israeli ministers, and Amnesty International came out and, and condemned that threat uh, against me mm -hmm. and held Israel accountable for any harm that would happen to me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, but aside from that, Israel has established a quote-unquote a blacklist of Israeli human rights defenders who are active in the BDS movement for Palestinian rights. And uh, I the Ministry of Strategic Affairs is working, uh, uh, arguably violating uh, laws, domestic laws in several countries in the world mm -hmm. by spying on activists around the world involved in BDS and by uh, pursuing legal cases against them. Mm -hmm. As Israeli lawyers and even foreign ministry officials ha have said, this might cross legal boundaries in mm -hmm. many of those countries, oh, really? getting Israel in trouble. And this is a big issue that was uh, uh, suppressed by the Western media, mm -hmm. but in the Israeli media it has been exposed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about the incident where you were subject to civil assassination or other ways where you've been subject to smear campaigns as a result of being associated with the BDS movement? Well, since 2014, I started facing a de facto travel ban, mm -hmm. uh, if not de jure travel ban, when the Ministry of Interior in Israel uh, uh, started dragging its feet and later refusing to issue me a travel document without which I cannot travel. Mm -hmm. uh, as a Palestinian who is a 
resident of Israel, I'm considered a resident through marriage to my wife, who's a citizen mm -hmm. of the state of Israel, Palestinian uh, citizen of the state of Israel, I absolutely need an Israeli travel document to travel mm -hmm. uh, and to return, in fact. So uh, that's how they implemented an, a, a de facto travel ban against me by refusing to renew. Mm -hmm. my permit, especially whenever I'm invited to speak at a major BDS event. Mm -hmm. And every time I, I had to challenge that. Uh, later that developed into a, a, a de jour travel ban when in 2017 uh, another attack started against me by accusing me of uh, tax uh, irregularities. Uh, and since then the Ministry of Finance imposed a travel ban on me wow. and every time I needed to travel I needed a court order in fact to travel wow. um, and that came to head when I was uh, chosen as one of the two recipients of the Gandhi Peace Award in mm -hmm. the United States and I was invited to a ceremony at Yale University in, in the US to, to, uh, to receive this uh, award uh, so there was a kind of a legal battle and I, I, I did go to, uh, to court and got a permission to travel. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I did get permission and I did travel and received uh, my award. Other than that, the smear campaigns against me have been nonstop since 2014, but have escalated tremendously since 2015 mm -hmm. with the election of the far-right government uh, in Israel. Mm -hmm. As one of the, the founders of BDS, can you speak a little bit to the goals in okay. developing a nonviolent form of resistance that people that are in solidarity with the people of Palestine can sure. can take up as well. Sure. BDS since 2005, when it was launched, called for ending the 1967 occupation, mm -hmm. ending the system of racial discrimination and inequality in Israel itself, mm -hmm. which meets the UN definition of the crime of apartheid, mm -hmm. and the right of Palestinian refugees to return, like all other refugees around the world. So we're not asking for the moon. We're asking for basic UN-stipulated rights of the Palestinian people. Mm -hmm. uh, and these rights, as minimal rights, are absolutely necessary for the Palestinian people to exercise our inalienable right to self-determination, which mm -hmm. is recognized by the entire world. Mm -hmm. um, activists around the world, human rights defenders, who defend Palestinian rights under international law through uh, measures of boycott, divestment and sanctions, whether selective or general measures from a full boycott of Israeli academic and cultural institutions, for example, mm -hmm. because of their complicity in human rights violations, to very targeted boycotts against companies, American companies, uh, British, French, uh, Israeli companies, mm -hmm. banks involved in denying us our rights. Mm -hmm. So no matter what type of measures you choose uh, to support Palestinian rights under international law, whether a full boycott of Israel's regime of colonialism and apartheid or very selective boycott of Israeli companies or international companies and banks involved in Israel's violations, you would be smeared by the Israeli government immediately and its lobby groups around the world as quote-unquote an anti-Semite. Mm -hmm. So Israel is, is in very intentionally and has been for years conflating opposition to Israel's violations of international law, to its regime of oppression, uh, to even its uh, Zionist ideology, which Palestinians know is a racist ideology, and most of the world recognizes it as a racist ideology. Mm -hmm. Conflating that with anti-Jewish bigotry, anti-Jewish discrimination, is uh, uh, not just anti-Palestinian, as it denies us our right to ask for rights, basically. Mm -hmm. It tries to smear and to demonize anyone supporting our 
quest for basic rights. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely anti-Palestinian. It's definitely false because the BDS movement rejects all forms of racism, including anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. But there's another dimension. It's an anti-Semitic issue as well. Mm-hmm. Conflating Israel with all Jews is anti-Semitic. It reduces uh, all Jews to one and the same monolithic sum that is completely represented by Israel. Mm-hmm. And this conflation harms the actual struggle against real anti-Semitism, real anti-Jewish bigotry, anti-Jewish discrimination, which still exists mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and uh, in many countries around the world. And many of our partners in the BDS movement, especially Jewish partners, are very involved mm-hmm. in this real struggle against real anti-Semitism. Israel is undermining that struggle. Final question for you. Can you speak to some arguments of those people who are in solidarity with Palestine and critical of Israel, but are hesitant to take up BDS because they feel that any sort of movement or discourse that maybe adds to sort of Israel's narrative of like being a victim on the international stage is not the best strategy to go with. What are your thoughts on this argument? Sure. BDS, you can think of it as uh, constituting two parts, Mm -hmm. the rights part and the tactics part. Mm -hmm. The rights, ending the occupation, ending apartheid, and uh, enabling Palestinian refugees to return to their homes of origin from which they were ethnically cleansed, are Mm non-negotiable. Those are our basic rights under international law. So that's the part of BDS that's not negotiable. Mm -hmm. Anyone who does not recognize equal Palestinian rights under international law to everyone else is a bigot. Mm -hmm. He's saying that Palestinians are not full humans, they're relative humans, Mm -hmm. and they deserve relative rights, Mm -hmm. a a subset of human rights that everyone else deserves. Mm -hmm. That's a very racist uh, point. So on on the issue of rights, there is no negotiation, and Palestinians will not accept anyone undermining our basic rights under international law. The second part of BDS uh, is the tactics, the strategies, boycott, divestment, sanctions against this bank, that company, this university, that project that violates international law. That is certainly context sensitive. Mm -hmm. A main operational principle in the BDS movement is context sensitivity, Mm -hmm. which means that partners decide what to target, what not to target, what strategies to adopt, what allies to form. Uh, Our allies in the Presbyterian Church USA or the United Methodist Church would push for a very selective boycott of settlement goods, for example, and that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. But we ask that they recognize our three basic rights, and the occupation, and the apartheid, and the right of return. Mm-hmm. That's not negotiable. Because the Palestinian people are not just those in the occupied territories. Only 38% of our people are in Gaza and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. 12% are Palestinian citizens of present-day Israel, mm-hmm. and 50% are Palestinians in exile in the diaspora, not allowed to go home because of their identity. Mm -hmm. They're the wrong identity for Israel, so they're not allowed to return Mm -hmm. to their homes of origin. Uh, But certainly tactics are uh, flexible, dynamic, and context-sensitive. So we do not impose any specific tactic. But getting also to this point that what if the American Studies Association or the Asian American Studies Association, the National Women's Studies Association, several academic associations in the U.S. have adopted a full boycott of Israel. Mm -hmm. Does that mean they will help Israel use its uh, uh, attacks on BDS? uh, Are they inadvertently increasing internal Israeli uh, uh, cohesion, so to speak, against the entire world? Mm -hmm. Well, in every colonial situation, opposition, resistance leads at first to this internal cohesion of the colonists. Mm. In South Africa, when the boycott started really biting, 
the first reaction is circling the wagons, mm -hmm. where all Afrikaners would stand against the whole world and would use the same argument that Israeli Zionists are using today. Oh, the world hates us. They hate our way of life. Mm -hmm. They want to destroy our way of life and uh, our society and so on. Uh, but, but that's only in the beginning. And that's what we're seeing today in Israel. The absolute majority of Jewish Israelis are banding together against the whole world, thinking that the world hates them, uh, refusing to see uh, the light, that it's your occupation, your apartheid, your colonialism that the world hates. It's not you as humans. Neither do we mm -hmm. hate you as individuals, as humans. We do not target you based on identity. We target your institutions based on complicity. BDS does not target identity, it targets complicity. Uh, but for them to see this, we need to have more of an impact. Once they start feeling more of the impact of BDS, you'll see many more cracks in the wall. We're already starting to see some cracks with increasing dissent in Israel. One very quick example, other than our Israeli partners, Boycott from Within, and other uh, Israeli uh, uh, groups that have endorsed BDS, the Coalition of Women for Peace, and, and several other groups within Israel, which we're very proud of. And despite their small numbers, they play a very substantial role in the global BDS movement. Recently, a few weeks ago, Natalie Portman, uh, uh, one of the most celebrated Israeli-American superstars, boycotted a ceremony in Israel honoring her mm -hmm. with a $2 million prize. And in the initial letter sent by Natalie Portman's uh, manager to the prize uh, foundation, she wrote to them that this is in opposition, in protest of Israel's atrocities in Gaza. I'm quoting, atrocities in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Later, Israel tried to spin this as something against Netanyahu in person, that she did not want to shake his hands at the ceremony or something. But, the, but, but it was revealed in the Israeli media that initially the first point was that she will not go, she does not feel comfortable going to Israel at this moment when its, when it's snipers are uh, uh, implementing a shoot-to-kill or main policy in Gaza, when Amnesty International has called for a military embargo on Israel, when the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court uh, is saying those uh, killings in Gaza, the intentional harming uh, with life-changing injuries of thousands of protesters, unarmed, peaceful protesters in Gaza, uh, might constitute crimes under international law. With all this environment, and Natalie Portman being part of the Women's March, uh, the, the liberal to progressive circles that are growing across the U.S. in opposition to the far right, the alt-right, the white supremacists, the Trump administration, the Trump-Netanyahu camp, and today Netanyahu is seen entirely in the Trump camp. Mm -hmm. Israel today is part of this far right coalition that Trump leads around the world. In this environment, Natalie Portman did not come out in support of BDS. Natalie Portman came out in support of her own liberal values that can no longer be reconciled with what Israel and Zionism stand for today. Natalie Portman is a Zionist. Natalie Portman does not support BDS, but she just could not feel comfortable going and receiving an honorary uh, uh, prize from Israel in this environment. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so it shows that this is not BDS yet, but the impact the general impact of Israel being uh, perceived rightly as a key part, as a model even, mm -hmm. used by, by Trump in his uh, uh, racial profiling, in his war with Mexico, and so on, in all his xenophobic policies, he cites Israel as a model, no less. Mm -hmm. So today, this is not lost on all those liberal Jewish American millennials mm -hmm. who are progressive, 
who, who have very entrenched liberal values and see what Israel is doing to Palestinians, the killings, the apartheid policies, banning rabbis from entering Israel because they support BDS, as mm -hmm. happened last year, and so on and so forth, they cannot uh, accept that. Mm -hmm. They will not accept Israel speaking on their behalf, and they're coming out much more loudly than before. Thank you, Omar. Good. Thank you. Frontline Defenders was founded in Dublin in 2001 to provide resources for the security and protection of human rights defenders at risk around the world. Rights on the Line is a new podcast initiative produced in-house by Frontline Defenders to present the work, the struggles, and the perspectives of HRDs at risk. Special thanks for this episode go to guests Sahar Francis, Jamal Juma, and Omar Bargodi. Music in this episode is from Let's Start at the Beginning by Lee Rosevere.